regular, regularly scheduled uh, Sunday school year. And <clears throat> if I wasn't obligated to be in this post 98% of the time, uh, I would definitely teach Sunday school. It is, I love teaching, but there is, there are windows in people's lives where when we communicate in word and deed and by presence and affection and care and love, the love and truth of God, it is exponentially more impactful. And uh, certainly childhood and during the adolescent years are massive years of opportunity where there is such open soil. And so I'd really encourage you to think and pray about it. I'm going to be tapping a few of you. I've, I've begun to kind of go through our database and praying over people. But I'm going to be tapping a few of you to say, would you consider being a Sunday school teacher this year, maybe at an age, with an age range in a class that you feel comfortable with and competent in, but we have lots of supports for you, more than ever heading into this year. I've already connected with Ray about that. And the commitment is kind of one month on, and depending on how many teachers we have, it might be one month on and then two months off or three months off. So it's not necessarily a huge commitment, but it's really, really um, a huge, huge opportunity for ministry. And, and, we, and we need it. We're, we're growing in, our, uh, in, in that demographic, and we, and we need more teachers. And in some classes, we sometimes even need two. Um, so uh, this is, as we continue to grow as a church, this is going to be something that we're all going to have to learn to shoulder together. But, um, but just to throw that out there, to, to, to please be praying for that. There are, there are people who come here every Sunday and, and pretty faithfully, and, they, and you have a lot of direct download, and it is special to be able to come in here and worship together and then hear the teaching. Um, but uh, there's also time to serve. And there's also time to invest. And, uh, you know, making maybe two or ultimately three, month, uh, three months of the year sacrifice to build into our little ones, uh, I think is awesome vision in terms of the kingdom of God. I think it's very little to ask. And um, the more we have, the more we can kind of s- spread that responsibility around. So I'll be praying for that and praying about that. We're in a series called Choose Your Own Adventure. It's the last week of the series. I just did it for August. I do this every few years, normally when I, as I've taught. It's kind of fun just to know what is on people's radar, what's on their hearts, what they want to be talking about, what they're wrestling through, whether it's very ground-level applied theology or conceptual theology. And uh, we've tackled them a number of things, anything from a, a whole nest of issues related to LGBT issues and uh, looked at issues related to hermeneutics and applied Christian living. And today we're going to kind of focus on two spheres. The the first is, very broadly speaking, what happens to young children who die? Children who we might presume don't don't have the the opportunity or the capacity even intellectually to embrace, to make a decision for themselves whether or not they want to choose to follow God or embrace Christ or not. And then we'll we'll get to ultimately someone who uh, raised a question that I think troubles a lot of people and has been a contentious issue in the church, which is, their question was, I've always been, I've always struggled with the fact that Jesus seems to only allow for divorce in the cases of marital infidelity or adultery. And their kind of pushback was, like, what about in cases of abuse or violence in the home? So their inference is like, that, that just seems cruel to say, well, only in this situation is divorce ever an option as a Christ follower? So we'll get to that one. But first we're going to look at really, really important question. It raises all kinds of issues as it relates to the nature of God, nature of salvation, and that is this. This is the question as the person submitted it. Are people underage who die going to heaven? 
like 21 years of age or maybe 16? Uh, Have they had enough life experience to make an informed choice as it relates to embracing the gospel or rejecting it, um, seeking God or not seeking or just kind of ambivalently just moving through life? What about people who have made a choice but drift? Do, Do these people have to reject Jesus to be out of the club? So really, really good questions here, and I'm going to start by framing it around a central truth that both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirms. It's affirmed in the New Testament in Romans 14, 12, where Paul says, each of us will give an account of himself before God. There will be a judgment day where every single human being who has ever lived will stand and give an account of themselves before God. We are all to render an account. So we're accountable before God, both in this life and before the judgment seat at a future date. Now, when people talk about an age, where that leads to is a question of something called an age of accountability. You'll never find that phrase in the Bible, but you'll find the word account, given account, you are accountable for, you are accountable to. And so it's, so Christians have come up with this idea or this kind of theological um, framework that says, There must be an age at which God holds people fully responsible and an age before which God doesn't. So the concept of the age of accountability is that, broadly speaking, children are not held accountable by God for their fallen fallen status before God, for their sinfulness, inherited sinfulness, until they reach a certain age. And if that child dies before reaching that age of accountability, then the child will, by the grace and mercy of God, be granted entrance into heaven. So the age of accountability is something that many, many Protestant churches, we're part of the Protestant wing of Christianity, Many Protestant churches would affirm where there's discussion is what it, where, when exactly does that happen? So some people might say, okay, it could be maybe around the age of 20 because in Israel, you weren't considered a man enabled to be drafted into the Israelite army until the age of 20. Under 20, you were not seen as an adult under Jewish law. And therefore, some people infer from that that it must be somewhere around the age of 20 that the age of accountability kind of kicks in as a general rule. Others say, no, it might be the age of 12 or 13. This is when uh, Jewish communities traditionally hold a bar mitzvah, which means son of the command. You've now become a son or daughter of the commands of God. You get them. You understand. You don't understand everything. You don't understand all their implications, but you're at a place of intellectual and spiritual maturity such that you are now accountable in terms of how you respond to those commands. So, again, different schools of thought on ages, but really the principles behind those things are the age of accountability occurs when someone reaches mental capacity or or spiritual capacity to, first of all, understand that they're responsible um, responsible uh, from seeing God's glory and revelation in his general creation. Paul talks about that in Romans 1. He says, Listen, people, and he's speaking to adults, people are without excuse because they know there's a God because if you just take a moment and look around you and study the creation, God has revealed many things about himself through the creation so that, no, so that people are without excuse. 
But then also, the age of accountability does seem to pull in this idea that they have to be of a certain age where they can understand, at least in an introductory way, the framework of the gospel. Uh, Acts 17 talks about this. That, that people have to be able to understand their need before God, the fact that there is a God, and they're at a place where they can say, okay, I'm alienated from God or I'm far away from God. God has done something to bring me back together. I need to put my faith and trust in Christ. And so kind of, it's when we can kind of wrap our heads and minds around the gospel, not fully, but to a place where God says, you're now accountable moving forward for how you respond. You can't play dumb anymore. Um... You can't plead ignorance. You know enough to honor me, even if that looks like, you know, whatever that looks like to you in terms of the light that you've been given. And so for me, I think that there is something of an age of accountability, but I would never tie it to an age, uh, simply because there are other extenuating circumstances like those who are born with severe mental deficiencies and handicaps. You might live their whole life and never actually reach an age of accountability where God says, you're actually accountable because you've been able to uh, take hold of this knowledge and this news. And so I, I don't like tying it to age. I like tying it more to a sense of um, when are people able to begin to grasp that there is a God and they are to seek God and to seek what God has for them and to respond to that in faith. And again, that's pretty broad, and that's going to mean for a lot of people, for some people that's six years old, for some people that's 25, for other people that's never um, in, in certain circumstances. But that does lead me to, I think, uh, to be standing on a ground of a lot of Christian tradition that says, I do believe that all children who have not reached that age of accountability and who die um, are ushered into heaven by the grace of God. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's a number of biblical reasons for that. John MacArthur, I think, has a great uh, insight that I had never thought of before, and I was reading some of his statements on, on this. And he said, one of the things you notice in the Old Testament is children, including those who, do, uh, especially those who die very young, are often referred to as innocent or innocence, the innocence. God does not delight in the, in the death of the innocents, for example. Um, now, theologically, we might say, well, every person's a sinner. Every person has a fallen sinful nature and is predisposed to sin, for sure. But God himself says, yes, but there are young children whom I do not count their sin against them in the same way. I don't hold them to account for that sinfulness. I deem them as innocent, not because they have no sin. Any parent of a young child knows your kids are sinful. Um, but God says, but their innocence, their, 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 their death uh, at the hands of, of people or at the hands of injustice is something that God looks upon and says, I have a special provision of grace for them. He says the word innocent is used numerous times in the Old Testament, and it doesn't refer to not being guilty in the sense that they have no sin. It's just that um, prior to the age of accountability, God treats these children as innocent. doesn't mean they're not fallen. doesn't mean that they have no sinful nature. But it does mean God mercifully treats them as innocent in spite of that, and he exercises grace. 
1 John 2.22 is another important passage. In it, we learn that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul says that about the church. Our sins, those who have trusted in Christ. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Some Christians believe that Jesus only died for people who would accept him. But 1 John 2.22 is a pretty important passage that I think counters that. It says actually Jesus died for the whole world so that any person has the potential to be saved, not only a few. And this verse makes it very clear that Jesus' death, his atoning death, was sufficient for all sins. Not just the sins of people who would say, oh, I realize I'm a sinner, I need God, and I put my faith in Christ. So uh, one commentator said, the fact that Christ's death was sufficient for all sin would absolutely allow for the possibility where God could apply the payment of the cross to innocence who didn't have the ability to either accept or reject it. Another very famous passage in the Old Testament is David's, the comfort David receives after finding out that the child that he had through an adultery with Bathsheba has died. That was one of the judgments of God upon David for his adultery with Bathsheba. He said, Nathan said, the child you have is going to die. And David's been fasting and he's been weeping all day long. He won't eat anything. He's inconsolable. The child dies. And then David gets up. He stops weeping. He stops fasting. He starts to eat again. And the servants come to him in 2 Samuel 12 and they say, why are you acting like this? While the child was alive, you fasted, you wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. Shouldn't you be even in more mourning? Because now like, there's a finality to it. Your child is gone. And David answered, well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. And I thought, who knows, maybe the Lord will be gracious to me and he'll let the child live. But now that my child is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he won't come back to me. Now, some people say, well, that's just David saying, I'm going to go to him, meaning I'll go to death uh, with him. But that's not really the narrative thrust of the passage because David is comforted by these things. David says, I'm going to see my son again one day. I'll go to him. But for right now in this life, he's not going to come back to me. But because of that, that, that um, David understands God's heart and he says, that son is being treated as an innocent and I will go to him one day. I will know him. It's, it's, a, it's a thing of comfort for David. And we know the scriptural witness again and again and again and again is that God is loving Yes, God is holy, but God is also merciful and just. God is gracious. When Abraham is pleading with God, God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And just all kinds of wickedness there. Wickedness is so much that it's, it's just come up to heaven and I can't, I can't abide it anymore. I can't just act as usual. The injustice and exploitation of the city is so great. And Abraham pleads with God. He says, God, listen, if you level, if you raise that city there are going to be righteous people who die. There are, this city is, city is full of wickedness, but there are righteous people here. And he says to God, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous as if they were wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. And then Abraham says to God, will not the judge of the earth do right? See, Abraham's appealing to God. It's this really fascinating account. There's a whole sermon there. We'll get to one day where Abraham keeps whittling down how many righteous people, um, but then he chickens out at the last second when he shouldn't have. But Abraham says, listen, I know you're the judge of the earth, and if you're the judge, that means you're going to execute judgment in a way that when all the facts are laid bare, people are going to look and say, 
that was right. God will never exact a judgment where when we have all the information, we'd look at it and say, that was pretty sketchy. Or that was just outright exploitative and wrong. Everyone, believer or non, will look at it and say, that is right. The judge of the earth will do right. And so we kind of hold all these things together into this framework that says, the same Savior who said, let the little children come unto me, uh, really, really meant it. That there is a grace and a provision for those, whether um, aborted in the womb, the victim of a tragic accident as a child, uh, a, a, a victim of war, uh, a victim of happenstance accident. Their children are ushered in to the presence of God. They, they're not ushered in because they're innocent. God applies the finished work of Christ to them because they never had the ability to either accept or reject it. So God, because we read about in the New Testament, because God wants all men to be saved, his desire is to look for any way to save someone. Those who have not rejected him, uh, he applies Christ's work to them. So I believe uh, very, very strongly that any parent, even uh, a non... um, Again, I want to make sure this is explicit because I don't want people to infer something that I'm not saying. I'm not saying all Christian children who die are going to heaven. I'm saying any children at all. Like any, any at all. Some people would argue only children of the covenant, only covenant children. Um, And I I just, I, I understand that thinking from a philosophical point of view, maybe, maybe the, the, the covenant nature of saved parents covers over children in terms of a household. I think there is blessings that come from that. But I think as it relates to this issue of salvation, I don't find any scriptural evidence why, or any division there. Um, I think there is, uh, there's good biblical grounds and philosophical grounds to say all children who have not reached the age of accountability are not held to account before God. And so because of Christ's work on the cross, they are ushered into glory. Um, one of the other questions that was there is kind of like, what about people who, who kind of backslide or who drift? And I, I kind of addressed that a few weeks ago and kind of like, can people lose their salvation? Um, and so then the question be- becomes, okay, so like, do you have to reject Jesus to be out of the club? And, the question, and, and really the short answer to that would be, after the age of accountability, you are now accountable before God to seek God, to seek everything that God has to say about how you are called to live and how you are called to respond to him. And at that point, once you reach the age of accountability, you are now under, um, you are now accountable for living inside the power and penalty of sin. And so we have to, at the age of accountability, moving onwards, we have to embrace Christ to save us out of sin because we are now accountable for that. It's not that sin kicked in at that point, it's that we are now accountable. So if we choose to reject God, then uh, yes, we will spend eternity away from God. And so it's, it's a very serious thing, um, s- certainly moving through your teenage years, that you begin to reckon and get a sense of taking, well, seeking God, seeking the truth of God seriously. That shouldn't be something that you play with because there is going to, uh, there might be a time, you don't know how much time you have, and there might be a time where God uh, calls you before him and, and you're not going to be able to plead ignorance. And so today is the day of salvation. Seek God today and seek to grow in him and learn all you can. 
So that kind of deals with the second question. Where do children raised under Islam go when killed in the Middle East conflict? Psalm uh, 24.1. The earth is mine, says the Lord, and everything in it. God lays claim to everything. And part of what makes... Um, Part of what makes sin a problem is that we're trying to use something for our ends when God says this is actually meant for my ends. And God doesn't, God isn't territorial in the sense that he says, well, the only things that I have authority over and access to are like, again, like Christian people or Christian kids. God says, no, no, that's, a, that's an ontological error. Every single thing in the universe is mine. I created it. I am the creator. It is creation. It is mine. And so... By the same logic, I would say what God does for any child, not just a child, not just covenant kids. I don't mean that in terms of our denomination. I mean in terms of God's covenant through Christ. All children who have not reached the age of accountability, Jesus, at the moment of death, I believe it's, you know, let the little children come to me. Um, There's different issues related to what happens to people who grow up in Islamic societies and reach an age of accountability but have never heard the gospel. That's a different question. We're not going to tackle that today. But I would uniformly and categorically state that all children, regardless of what religion their household is or their country is, what worldview, they could be raised by Satanists. Um, if, if they are innocent, but if God holds them innocent under the age of accountability and applies Christ's work to them, they, they will be saved. Uh, so... That, that's just where I would stand with that. Now, to be fair, I do want to say everything that I've just said is inferring things based on certain biblical principles. You can't turn in the Bible and say this is exactly what happens to children who die. It's actually, a, even though infant mortality was very, very common um, in, the, in the days of the biblical writing, it's not addressed too much. And so, you know, I'd never say, you know, I'd never die on that hill, but I think you can draw out a lot of these biblical principles and arrive at this idea that all children under the age of accountability are saved because it aligns most well, I think, with the gospel, with God's principles of judgment, and with the kind of, again, the the whole narrative scope of how God deals with children, both Old and New Testament, and by what uh, by what mechanisms God judges people, which is often about rejecting him or suppressing the truth, which Obviously, children uh, or those with severe uh, mental delays really aren't able to. Third question. This is the last one we'll tackle today, but it's a really, really important one. I've always been troubled by the fact that Jesus said divorce was only permitted on the grounds of infidelity. What about violence in the home? And I would add to that, what about lots of things? What about having a spouse who is... uh, addicted to gambling and is just siphoning the family's future away and causing economic ruin? Um, What about situations where there is uh, uh, tremendous, um, maybe there's not infidelity, maybe there's not violence, but there's there's verbal violence, maybe not physical violence, but verbal violence, uh, or tremendous uh, coldness or or apathy or, uh, I mean, I've, I've been a pastor now for, you know, almost 15 years. And you understand, as you talk to people, uh, marriage is challenging and marriage is difficult. And the struggles in marriage don't just boil down to, well, adultery or not. And so for Jesus to say, well, only if, 
in the case of adultery, is divorce ever okay? It seems unnecessarily cruel. It seems vindictively narrow. And so uh, what I want to look at today is kind of like, is that what Jesus is saying? How do, we, how do we apply that if it is? And if it isn't, what is actually maybe going on in that text? So whenever we talk about marriage, I always like to kind of start with uh, marriage and, or divorce. I always want to start with marriage, and I want to kind of understand what God says about marriage because that's going to create all the boundaries for understanding what Jesus says about divorce. So first of all, the Bible from beginning to end in the particulars and in the broad strokes elevates marriage as something really highly exalted. It is a particularly good element of God's creation through which God seeks to be, use it as a conduit to blessing for individuals, for couples, for children, for communities. Marriage is viewed as a gift from God and the male-female relationship that gets established in Genesis 1 and 2 is meant to reflect the very image of God. Something new is created out of the oneness in male and female, and so marriage has a significant, what philosophers call ontological element. The, the idea is the study of being. Marriage uh, can literally bring new things into existence, uh, which, very, which almost nothing else can do in creation. Most of the things that we're doing creatively with the rest of creation, we're taking something rewiring it, re-engineering it into something else. Marriage actually brings about a new life. It's quite amazing. A new entity is created in marriage, which is viewed as the work of God. God's covenant to his people, he uses again and again the metaphor of marriage. He talks about Israel being his bride. He talks about himself as being like the groom who pursues her. That God's covenantal commitment to his people is framed through the metaphor of marriage. This is the way God thinks about his relationship with people. He can't think about having a relationship with people outside of the context of marriage. And that's why God is, and the scriptures are so fiercely, um, well, and God will often say, I'm a jealous God. I'm, I'm jealously seeking to hold together this understanding and view of marriage because this is at the very center of what it means to be uh, in relationship with me. Jeremiah 2 uh, Hosea 2, which we'll read about in a second, Revelation 21, all these scriptures that speak to the fact that God has, is married to his people. And the word that get, gets attached that I've used, and maybe I should spell it out because it's kind of a Christianese word, it's not used in a lot of other contexts, is covenant. Not just a marriage, but it's a marriage covenant. And a covenant is something that is both legally binding and emotionally uh, and fueled by love. So it's both legal and loving. So it's, it's more legal than a relationship where we just say, well, I just love you and I don't need a piece of paper, I don't need commitment. It's more than that, but it's more loving than simply a transactional relationship where you kind of agree to partner together. You're going to be my partner in life and we're going to be married and we're going to achieve these goals, but there's not a lot of love and passion there. God's covenant with his people is always seen as holding both of those together. Now in Malachi 2.6, we read... God says to his people through the prophet Malachi, I hate divorce, full stop. I, I hate it. And we understand why. God says marriage is a gift. It's something through which I want to bless the world. It is, um, it is a unique conduit of understanding my love for you. So when divorce happens, God says, I hate it. There's no qualifier there. God just says, I hate divorce. It's always something which God says, I never celebrate this. This is never a good thing. 
But look at what God says in Jeremiah 3, verses 6 to 9. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, this is Jeremiah talking, and he says, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She's gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she was done with all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. Israel was split into two. Northern part of the country was Israel. Lower part was Judah. Yet I, um, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. God says, I hate divorce. But God says to the prophet of Jeremiah, there came a time in my relationship with Israel where I, I knew its sting. I, under, I understood. I had to actually write my people a certificate of divorce. So when we're talking about marriage and divorce and the beauty and power and goodness that can come from marriage and the heartbreak and the destruction that divorce inevitably leaves in its wake, no matter how civil, the scripture tells us God is someone who's uniquely attuned to the hurt and pain of divorce. And it is something he hates, not in the abstract, because it's never touched his heart. Uh, He knows what it is to be uh, rejected, to be humiliated by someone in a relationship, to have someone say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks, and essentially say, live with their finger pointed up, to, middle finger pointed up toward them, saying like, yeah, I don't need you anymore, see you later. I found something better. I've moved on. But even in the face of that kind of rejection, God's vision for restoration is still even greater God doesn't say, you know what? You made your bed. You're going to lie in it. You wanted to cut yourself off from me. That's fine. Okay. See ya. I'm walking away from you. Hosea 2, you should read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read some selected passages. But Hosea 2 is an amazing chapter where the vision for God's pursuing love in the face of his people being depicted as an adulterous woman who have rejected him, it really, really shows God's heart for not just marriage in the abstract, but for fighting for marriage in places where it would be very, very easy to walk away and to say, this isn't easy, and you know what? My life would be easier without these people. So in Hosea 2, uh, God shares these words. First part, first 12 verses, he's kind of saying, these are all the ways that she's defiled herself and she's walked away and she's treated our relationship like it's nothing. She's broken covenant with me. She's gone off and, and prostituted herself out with other, other lovers, meaning other gods, the gods of the nations around. They've, she's kind of treated me as, as nothing and, and, and uh, you know, literally whored herself out to, uh, to other people. And God says, I will punish her for the days that she burned incense to the balls. That's a foreign God. And she decked herself out with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but she forgot me. She she didn't give me a moment's notice. And what you might imagine God will, is the next part of the verse, what you might imagine God says is, I'm going to punish her and then I'm going to level all these judgments against her because it is right and she deserves it. And she didn't know how good she had it. 
There's probably, probably no greater spouse in the universe than the true and living God. So if you reject that, God actually can say, that was the most foolish thing you've ever done. You're not going to find anybody better. And so for God to unleash wrath or judgment or vindictiveness out of that would be justifiable, one could argue, but this is what God says instead. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I'm going to lead her into the desert and I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And there, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope and she will sing as in the days of her youth as in the day she came up from Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, she will call me husband and she will no longer call me my master. God says, I'm going to woo her back. I'm going to re-seduce her. I'm going to re-attract her. I know I have every right to just let her drive her life into a ditch and leave her there. But I love her. Deuteronomy 7, 7. Why did I choose you, Israel? Because you were great and amazing and just the top-notch people in the whole world, so I chose you because you got a gold star? No, he says, I, I, I love you because I love you. I'm going to keep pursuing you, even if you're unfaithful to me. God's covenant love again and again is a pursuing love. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. Right? God's saying, I'm going to remarry you. I'm going to re-pursue you. We're going to get remarried. We're going to work this out. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. I will show you my love. I will show my love to the one who is named now, not my love. And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So we see in scripture that marriage is something beautiful and it's something through which God understands his own identity as it relates to his relationship with creation, with his people. Marriage is the dominant metaphor of understanding who God reveals himself to be and what it means to be in a relationship with God. And that has is, that is two implications. Uh, a, a teacher from um, back in Ontario that I was reading this week, Bruxy Cavey, he said, um, there's two really significant things that come out of the marriage covenant. Number one, people should be able to learn something about the nature of God's love by observing healthy marriage relationships. God wants our marriages, of course they're not perfect, but they want, to, they want to be characterized by a kind of love and graciousness and kindness and respect and pouring into each other that other people would say, I don't know if I believe in God, but that kind of love speaks to something different. It's not transactional, it's not consumeristic. I can't put my finger on it, but when I spend time with these people or when I observe them, they're not fake, they're not flowery, there's, there's, they have, there's, there's a grittiness here, that they have issues, and they're working through them, but there's a, a different category of love here. There's a different kind of category, they might not use the language, we might say covenant love, that is just fighting for something and it's beautiful and I want that. And also, God's attitude and actions in his marriage to his covenant people can serve us in many cases as examples of the kinds of love that we should demonstrate in our human relationships. So we look in the Old Testament especially, where God's people are so unfaithful and they're complaining about stuff and they're just constantly never living up to their end of, in a sense, the bargain. And God is still gracious and pursuing them and forgiving them. And that's meant to be instructive to us when we're tempted to confess our spouse's sins, to say... Wow, like God didn't do that. Like God continued to show faithfulness and grace. Um, 
yeah, maybe it would be easy for me to throw my spouse under the bus. Maybe it would be very easy for me to exaggerate his or her faults. But this marriage relationship between God and his people, this is how I, the way, the, the way that I'm hurt by the fact that my spouse treats me, I treat God like that most of the time. So that should give us a pause and it should give us a tenderness of heart and should cause us to be careful and really move through our marriages uh, carefully. So that's kind of the big framework. And that's really important for us to understand to now move into the question where Jesus says in Matthew 5, seems to be plain as day, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become adulterous and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Seems pretty clear. That gets repeated in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, some Pharisees, some teachers law come to test Jesus and they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus says, haven't you read that in the beginning, the creator made the male and female and he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined, let no man separate. Well, why then, they said, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said, well, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your hardness of heart. But it was not this way from the beginning. Wasn't that, that's not what God intended. This wasn't God's ideal or even close to it. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So those are the statements of Jesus that have traditionally been used to say, as Christians, we need to uphold marriage and fight for the best in our marriages. And that's one important way we honor God, absolutely. And the only um, activity that can threaten that marriage in which a Christian could pursue divorce in a justifiable way would be adultery, because that's, that's what Jesus says here. There's a bit of a problem with that, because as the New Testament plays out, as the pastoral letters are written, uh, God, through Paul to the, first, uh, to the Corinthians, in the first letter to the Corinthians, opens up another reason why it would be okay to separate and divorce from a spouse. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, to the rest of you I say this, not, uh, I say this, not the Lord. Um, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it, as it is, they're holy. Okay, here's, here's the real key, key thing, verse 15. But if you're a Christian, if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, they're like, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I want a divorce. Let him do so. Let them go. A believing man or a believing woman is not bound in such circumstances. You're not obligated to stay in the marriage. God has called you to live in peace for the sake of peace. Let that person go. It might be very hard for someone to live with someone who's now saying, you're not the center of my life. Jesus is the center of my life. And Paul says, very practically, that person, if they don't become a Christian, they're like, I, don't, I didn't sign up for this. I, I, I don't, I'm not a part of your wacky Christianity. I don't want to be part. Like, I, I want out. Paul says, for the sake of peace, you, you, you can, like a divorce is, uh, is open in that situation. So the scripture, so Christians take this and they hold these two together and they say, okay, well, it seems like scripture has two pretty explicit reasons 
why you could get a divorce. One is marital unfaithfulness. And the word there that Jesus uses is porneia in the Greek. It's obviously the word from which we get pornography. But it's a huge catch-all term in the first century that essentially means any form of sexual expression outside of marriage. Um, any form of sexual activity outside of your marriage covenant with your spouse is porneia. It's sexual immorality. So it's a, it's a really broad term, but it's meant to cover uh, kind of any and all uh, non-marital sexual activity. So they say that for sure, Jesus said that, but also Paul writes this. Um, but even in that case, people are like, that still seems really narrow. Like, what about cases of abuse and, and, uh, and exploitation? How do we understand these teachings? One really important verse that hardly ever gets brought up here is um, Deuteronomy 24.1. Deuteronomy 24.1 is the clause that allows people, men to write a certificate of divorce to their wives. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her, uh, sorry, gives it to her and sends her from her house, then he can remarry. Now, in the Hebrew, there's some weird things going on in what I learned. And what you have in Hebrew is kind of the literal translation would be, if a man marries a woman who has become displeasing to him because he finds any cause indecency. There's two words in Hebrew that come beside each other, any cause indecency. And in the first century, there were, it was a pretty fierce debate about why did God put those two words there? In the sense of saying, if God, if God just meant indecency, which is what gets transliterated as porneia, just kind of sexual immorality outside of marriage, if that's all God meant, why didn't he say, if, he, um, um, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because of indecency, dot, dot, dot. doesn't say that, though. It says any kind or any cause of indecency. So, Two schools of thoughts emerge. School of Shammai interpreted Deuteronomy 24 as indicating that a man could divorce his wife only for the cause of unfaithfulness and decency. But the school of Hillel understood the passage to mean that a man could divorce his wife for any cause and or indecency. So yes, adultery, but she burns your meal for any cause. She's displeasing to you in any kind of way. Well, that technically, I can fit that in there. And when most, almost every scholar, uh, I think, who I think is doing a good job of the text, says what Jesus is, is in dialogue with in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 is this issue. Because remember in Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to test Jesus, right? They come to test him. They want to know, where do you stand on this issue? We talk about this all the time, Jesus. Are you like divorce only in the case of adultery or divorce for any cause and adultery? Is it okay for someone to divorce their wife for any and all reasons? Older translations will say any cause. Jesus circumvents the whole argument by saying... Um, the issue, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, what are all the avenues through which I can seek a divorce? Jesus says, you have to look at the hardness of your heart. You should be asking the opposite question. You should be asking, what are all the ways through which I should be seeking to reconcile 
with my spouse. And so um, I would be of the view that would say Jesus in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 is not intending us to read that as a comprehensive teaching on all cases of divorce. Those are specific references to a specific issue that was happening. Further to that, further evidence to that, David Instant Brewer in his article, What God Has Joined in Christianity Today, I think it was in 2009, but it was, it was a juggernaut. It was so good. He says, in these passages, Jesus is defending the true meaning of Deuteronomy 24.1. This is what God said. Don't try and weasel out of it by trying to broaden how you get to get out from under being committed to the wife of your youth. But a Jewish person reading this text will notice, oh, but Jesus didn't condemn the other reason given in the Old Testament for why you could divorce someone. He references Deuteronomy 24, but Jesus doesn't talk about Exodus 21, 10, and 11 at all. He's silent on that. Exodus 21, 10, and 11 outlines how you can separate and divorce in cases of severe neglect. Before rabbis introduced the any-cause divorce, this was probably the most common type. Exodus says that everyone, even slave wives who were taken by Israelite soldiers, had three rights within marriage. The right to food, to clothing, and to, uh, the translations always kind of, you know, kind of do marital duty, but it's essentially sex, but loving intimacy. And if even slave wives were not receiving those, they were allowed to seek separation. Women could and did get divorces for neglect, though the man still had to write the certificate of divorce. And so, I think, and I've done a lot of, lot of reading, still, still swimming in it, but I think what we're actually seeing in the New Testament, in a lot of what Jesus says, is a return and heightening to what God's original intent was. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even, you know, adultery of the heart is just as dangerous. I know the law says don't kill, but I say to you, the law says you can divorce your wife. I mean, Jesus is saying, yes, only in our marital unfaithfulness. And there's kind of a debate there also. Is that hyperbolic to not have us understand that it's legalistic, but to impress upon us the seriousness with which we should pursue um, healthy, God-honoring marriages? And before we're too quick to say, well, I'm uncomfortable with that, you're going to have statements like Jesus, you know, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Your left, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. No one takes that literally. We know it's Jewish hyperbole. That doesn't mean Jesus isn't serious about it. He just doesn't want us to take it literally in, our, in the literal application. But he's saying, when you discover patterns of sin in your life, don't be like, well, it is what it is. What are you going to do? It's just a bit of yang to balance out the yang. Like, it's not the, I've got it controlled over here. You cut it out. You get rid of it. You quarantine it and you destroy it. Sin is not something to be played with. And so Jesus' commands uh, and instructions about marriage and divorce in Matthew 5 and Matthew 5, uh, 19 are really ultimately to underscore and to push back on religious leaders who are trying to massage the text to give increasingly accessible pathways to divorce, which in most cases we're going to end up exploiting and hurting women. Men could just kind of write a certificate of divorce. I'm living on with my life, and now a woman is economically, socially, relationally impoverished. So, uh, I would argue 
that I think there are a number of biblical reasons for divorce. Number one is clearly porneia. That's the word Jesus used, sexual infidelity, in any expression outside of marriage. The second is um, abandonment of the unbelieving spouse. That's 1 Corinthians 7. And the third broader one is, uh, is neglect, food, clothing, and love. Extreme neglect. Not my spouse doesn't provide every single thing I would ever want or, or, or need, um, but extreme neglect. You're treating this person uh, as inhuman and not attempting to provide what God wants for all human, human beings. So seen through this lens, I think we see a principle, and this is something that, um, again, I want to be careful here because this is not biblical in the sense that there's a, a chapter and verse for it. Again, we're inferring, we're gathering a lot of data, holding it all together and saying, what's the best way to express this? And I, this is how I would word it. Divorce, while it is completely against God's desire, it is never something God celebrates. It may be sought by a spouse who has, um, who, sorry, it may be sought, sought when a spouse participates in a covenant-breaking activity. A pattern of behavior which is uh, egregious, and again, I know that's vague, and that can mean a lot of different things, but that's where we have to ground it in Jesus' vision that says our first instance isn't, oh, what are all the ways that my spouse is letting me down that I can justifiably go after divorce? Jesus says, look to what God did with Israel. He woos her back. He keeps pursuing her even when she's unfaithful. That's what you should be fighting for in your marriages. We have no record up until the last hundred years, frankly, of the church ever taking a very casual approach to marriage. Even in the early church, and the early church, even though I think there's doctrinal evidence and scriptural evidence that they didn't have to do this, most historians in the early church will say the only thing that we have on record in the early church of why Christians divorced was because of adultery. Um, so they might have been justified in going beyond that, but the church has always said Christians witness to something. They witness to God's fierce covenantal love when they fight for marriage, even when it's difficult. That doesn't mean that divorce is never an option. In some cases, it's the only option in places of unrepentant, consistent neglect and abuse and violence and uh, sexual misconduct. But we should be striving in our marriages to seek reconciliation. And so with that, let's make sure we understand unjustifiable reasons for divorce. Because this is the heart of what Jesus is trying to get at. Jesus, can I divorce my wife for any and every reason? Like, I've just, I've fallen out of love with her. Nope, that's, that's not justifiable grounds for divorce. I don't feel like we have a lot in common anymore. Like, we've kind of gone different paths and we just have different hobbies and different stuff. Nope, not justifiable reason for divorce. This can't be God's will for my life. I don't, feel, I don't feel settled. I don't feel happy. I don't feel at peace. I have this vision for what a marriage should be and what marriage ought to be, but that's not what's happening in my marriage. So I think it's time for me to move on. God says, nope, that is not justifiable. They would be happier without me. Nope. I'd be happier without them. Nope. Marriage is not designed for your happiness. It is designed for your holiness. We love those who are difficult to love, which is all of us, in our marriages, and we learn about God's tremendous love and grace towards us in that relationship. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Right? So we should never pursue divorce flippantly, but I do believe there are biblical grounds 
that in many cases are a case-by-case basis, but in extreme cases of abuse or neglect, I think divorce is never something to be celebrated, but is justifiable and can be uh, pursued with a clear conscience saying, I've done my part, but this person's been unrepentant, and for the sake of my children, my future, my family, my own welfare, um, we need to move on. Let me end with some hope for those who have experienced divorce, because again, this is not a conceptual issue for a lot of people in this room. Divorced people are loved by God. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And I would even argue divorced people have a unique window into the gospel. Because if you think about it, divorce lies at the very heart of the gospel. You know, on the cross, you know what Jesus is doing, right? He's allowing himself to experience the full divorce, the great divorce, from perfect relationship with God as the second person of the triune God. He voluntarily subjects himself to the full weight of a billion rejections, of a billion middle fingers in the face of a lover who wants to reconcile and pursue and to save and redeem and to love. He bears the full weight. He allows himself to be completely divorced from the power and the presence of God, the love of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you divorced me? Why did he do that? He did it so that you and I could be reconciled to God. Even though we deserve to be divorced and to stay divorced, to be alienated from God, God allows himself to be divorced so that we could be brought in. All this is from God, Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthian church, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. For if when we were God's enemies, Paul writes in Romans 5, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God has a heart for those who have experienced divorce. Because God was divorced. God knows what it means to be, to experience the heartache and the wake of being separated from pure and good love. And in the gospel, we see a God who voluntarily subjects himself to that so that we can not only be reunited with God, but that we can take that vision of reconciliation, yes, first into our marriages, but then to the world. Let's ask God for the grace to do that. Let's pray. God, your love is fierce and it is jealous and it is good and it is holy and it is fiery and it is unrelenting. And I pray that for those of us here, married or single, we would know that love in a deeper way. That the glory of the cross, the fact that you would subject yourself to a spiritual divorce so that we could be spiritually reunited with God here in this life and then be fully reunited at the marriage supper of the Lamb at a future date, God. Um, but that transforming truth settle into our hearts and our imaginations in new ways. Teach us this week, maybe in our own marriages, God. Help us to take one step in pursuing the ministry of reconciliation. We pray and ask this in your name. Amen.